find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. Um, just before we dig into that passage, though, uh, there were a couple of questions that people wrote uh, on blue slips uh, a couple of weeks ago. I completely forgot at the beginning last week to do them. Um, but uh, they are uh, questions that people ask. So we have tearaway slips on uh, our notice sheets, and people can use them to keep in touch, ask for prayer points, uh, but also to ask questions. So these were from a couple of weeks ago, looking at uh, that chapter 11, uh, looking at uh, what faith is uh, and what faith isn't. Uh, So the first question is to do with Abraham. And it says in Hebrews 11, verse 12, when it says, and him as good as dead, what does it mean? So we're told about Abraham, that God had made him great promises, even though he was as good as dead. Well, we saw a little bit last week, didn't we, that actually what it means by that is that he's not the sort of person in one way that you'd want, if you're going to make a great people. And to put it, put it in a nice way, he's not a spring chicken uh, when God makes him promises, is he? Uh, he's an old man. If you're going to have somebody you were going to give promises to to make a great nation, to uh, have a, people as numerous as the sand on the seashore, then choosing an 80, 100-year-old man is not, not normally the way that you would do it. So it's referring to his body uh, being almost as good as dead in terms of having children. But the amazing thing that we saw that week, if you remember, is that God raises the dead. We saw last week, didn't we, that uh, uh, Abraham received Isaac figuratively back from the dead. So God is able to even conquer death, uh, even with Abraham's body being as good as dead. Uh, the other question was to do with Hebrews 11 verse 1. Uh, so I'll read Hebrews 11 verse 1 to you again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And the question says, Uh, Faith is certainty, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, is a doubting Christian an oxymoron? Now, that's a contradiction in terms, if you're not familiar with the term. Um, And I want to say to that, no. Because partly, it was believing, faith is believing these things. But also, uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. If it was an unbelieving Christian, then yes, that would be an oxymoron, because a Christian is a believer, But a doubting Christian will know, actually, they're two completely different words in the Bible. So the words for doubt that are used in the New Testament, uh, distazo, and that means being in two minds. Uh, You can only be in two minds if you're in one mind to start with, if you like. Um, Or diacrino, to oppose oneself, to sort of disagree with your own view. But you can only do that, again, if you actually have your own view. Um, Actually, the word for unbelief in the Bible is apistos, or apisto. Um, which is literally unbelief. So you can only doubt something in the Bible if you already believe it. You can only doubt it if you already believe it. You're in two minds about it. If you don't believe it, then you're just in one mind, aren't you? Unbelief. So you you can doubt as a Christian. It's not a good position to be in. The Bible tells us not to doubt, but it's not an oxymoron. An unbelieving Christian would be, but not a doubting Christian. If you have any more uh, questions with that, uh, it was anonymous, both of those ones. If you want to come back to me, talk to me afterwards, or uh, write another blue slip, that's absolutely fine. Uh, We're going to come to our our passage now. We're just going to look at the second part of that, which was read, so Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. And I want you to imagine the eight of you are lined up. Legs are tense as you get ready. You can see the finish line further down the track. You get in the starting blocks. The silence in the crowd, the gun is fired, and you're off. And a few seconds later, it's all over. You've won the race. 
All that's left now is to take your place on the podium. You see, the picture in our passage this morning in uh, Hebrews 12, 1-3 is of a race. And as I came to prepare this passage, I thought this is brilliant. Because I used to sprint at school, so I know all about racing. But actually, as I started to prepare, I started to think, well, actually, this isn't really the race that I'm used to. I mean, I, I know that feeling of the starting blocks and the tension waiting for the gun and the elation of crossing over the finish line. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised that this race isn't the sort of race that I used to do at school. Firstly, it's not a sprint. Do you notice you were called to run the race with endurance in verse 1? I didn't need any endurance for 100 metres. You just have to run, don't you? And actually, people who are very good at 100 metres generally are not good at long distance, are they? They're a completely different animal of race. The second difference is it's not a competition, See, the goal in this race is not to get the fastest time. The goal is to make it to the end, to get past the finish line, to finish the race. So it's not a competition. And there's another thing different as well. As I I decided to Google this for images to try and sort of help as we went through, and I kept seeing these recurring things over and over again. I've got some pictures for you. This is if you Google um, Hebrews 12 verse 1. What do you notice about all those pictures that we've got in the background of the verses. Do you notice it's just one runner? They're generally in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) sort of just running somewhere. But actually, that's not the picture in our passage. It's let us run. I think this is probably a better image. This is what I found. But there's only one of them, I think, I could find where it actually had a group of people running. We're running with other people. And the Hebrews were running with other people as well. And we're not off in the distance somewhere. Actually, we're running together. But there are some similarities to what I was talking about with the the race, though, that I'm used to. There is a great crowd surrounding us. Do you see that there in verse 1? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. There's a great crowd spectating us, but they're not silent. Like the hushed crowd before a race. All the way through chapter 11, if you remember, we've been seeing that these heroes of faith speak, even though they're dead. That's mentioned all the way through, that these people speak to us. So the idea is not so much that they are watching or witnessing us, but they are witnessing to the life of faith. They're the ones that are talking, they're the ones that are speaking. It's not so much that they're looking on us and cheering us, it's that they're speaking to us. Though perhaps they're cheering as well, who knows? But we are looking at them rather than them looking at us. They're not a crowd of spectators, they're speaking. They're people who have finished the race, or they're part of the race anyway. They're like a crowd gathered around the finish line in a relay race, willing on the people who are still running. They've done their bit, but the race won't be finished until we're all home. Do you notice that back in Hebrews 11 verse 40, uh, of 39 and 40? And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the race won't be finished until everybody's home. So they're cheering us on, they're speaking to us to help us to keep going. And now we're in a better position even than they were to finish the race. So the author now gives us two things that we must do to finish the race. And if we're serious about living the Christian life, about making it to the end, 
then we need to listen to what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He isn't writing this to pass the time of day or to give us something inspirational to put on a calendar. He's writing this so that we'll make it to the end. Two things he tells us to do. The first is forsake. Forsake. Have a look again at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Imagine for a second being so committed to something that you would give up anything in order to get it. You'd do anything if it meant reaching your goal. Well, in the ancient world, athletes ran completely naked. Why? Well, you might think that's just what the Greeks did. You know, you always see those sort of statues and things. It really wasn't what the Greeks did. Issues with nudity date back to Victorian... No, sorry, don't date back to Victorian times. Get that right? They date back to Adam and Eve, don't they? They were ashamed when they were naked. So everybody through history has had some sort of issue with, with nudity. So why did they run naked? Well, they did it because they cared so much about winning the race that they would cast off anything and everything that would get in the way of winning. And that even included their clothes. You see, in those days, there was no spandex or lycra that you sort of see people running in now. So if you wanted to be streamlined in the race, you had to be naked. If you wanted to run fast, you couldn't wear a heavy toga or a tunic. You had to go with what would not impede your running. It's a bit like those films like Indiana Jones um, <clears throat> that we're watching, uh, or Romancing the Stone or Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, I was born in the 80s, so you can probably tell from that. Um, but in all those films, there's always one character, isn't there? He was always really well-dressed at the beginning, you know, in high-heeled shoes and, uh, you know, fancy dress. And there always comes that scene where they're being chased, doesn't there? And she's got to decide, hasn't she, between her heels and getting caught. And what happens in all those cases? Well, they, you know, they do, they grab their shoes, they break off their heels, they tear off the bottom of their dress. Because they think that staying alive is worth more than the fancy stuff that they've got on. That's the sort of picture that we've got here. It's just throwing aside stuff that's going to hinder us. A runner throwing it aside, anything that could cause them to trip. The expensive shoes, their brand new toga, their purse, their wallet. Or it's a bit like when you sort of see, again, those sort of action films where they're trying to escape in a plane or a hot air balloon. And they're not getting the height. And they've got to decide, what can they throw off the side? And they start throwing things and choosing uh, what they're going to throw off. Anything to, to be able to not crash. Well, the author is telling us here, this is what we need to do in the race of faith. This is what we need to do in our Christian lives. We need to forsake things. We need to cast them off. The author tells us to ditch two things in our passage. The first is every weight that weighs us down. And the second is every sin that, sings, that sit, clings so closely. And I want to say that they're not the same thing. It's not that there are two different ways of explaining the same thing. Things that weigh us down are not necessarily the same as the, things, the sins that cling so closely. Which actually makes this passage more radical than we might first imagine. Because I think as Christians, if we're Christians here this morning, we, we get the idea that ditching sin is a good idea. We know that we're supposed to be getting rid of sin in our lives. But it's not just sin that he's telling us to ditch. 
He's telling us to ditch everything that weighs us down, whether good or bad. Anything that will stop us finishing the race. What do those things include? Well, they might include things that are not sin, but cause us to sin. We need to hear Jesus' incredibly radical call to holiness in Matthew 5. Put it on the back of your notice sheet. Matthew 5, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes to hell. That is very radical, isn't it? Because is your right hand sinful? No. But Jesus says you're better off without it if it causes you to sin. Cast it off that you might run more freely. Jesus doesn't stop there in the passage. He goes on to tell us the same for our eyes. I wonder what it would be for us, you know, if your iPad causes you to sin, throw it away. If your television causes you to sin, throw it away. If social media causes you to sin, not just technological stuff, but these are things that often can cause us problems, can't they? So anything that causes us to sin, we're to cast off, we're to throw away. But it also includes ditching things that are good or neutral, which might distract us in the race. Let me give you an illustration for that. Uh, when I was a teenager, just after I'd become a Christian, uh, I was really into the X-Files. Uh, that wasn't 80s, that was 90s. Uh, I was so obsessed with it, in fact, that I, I memorised in order the first three series, uh, episode titles, all the way through from beginning to end. That's how sort of into it I was. My thoughts were taken up with Mulder and Scully all the time. But actually, they were thoughts that should have belonged to Christ. Uh, a good Christian friend took me to one side and said, why don't you use that memory to try and learn the books of the Bible in order? Which is actually what I decided to do. Actually, I decided, really, it was just becoming a real distraction in my Christian life. And I stopped watching the X-Files, mid-90s, so I've no idea what happened. Please don't tell me. But is, <laughs> but is the X-Files sinful? No. It's not really a lot of violence, no swearing, no sex, no nudity. Did I need to cast it off? Definitely. Definitely. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, do we have an X-Files equivalent? Good things that risk becoming a distraction. Things that aren't bad in themselves, but could weigh us down in the race. Taking up thoughts and energy that should belong to Christ. And there comes a point when we just have to ditch them if we want to finish the race. There are also, though, things that are a bit more complicated, aren't there, in our lives that can weigh us down. There are good things that we cannot and should not ditch, but that we need to stop from weighing us down. What I mean by that, for example, is our, our spouse or our family. It's not as if Christ here is calling us to ditch them, because elsewhere in Scripture that's really clear. But there has to be a way to stop those things from becoming a distraction from Christ. There has to be a way to stop those things from weighing us down in a way that is unhelpful. So to help us think about this, I've just got 1 Corinthians 7. If you just turn that up, the page numbers are on the screen.
Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll read verses 32 to 35 first. This is Paul writing. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So it seems there as though Paul seems to be saying that being single allows you to be more devoted to the Lord, doesn't it? But he doesn't tell us to ditch our wives or husbands, and he doesn't forbid people to marry. What he does say in verses 29 to 31, uh, he says, Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing away. What he's saying there is that there is a sense in which we'll be in the world, but not held by it. In our lives, but yet something else will be more important for us. So it is not telling us to neglect our spouses or our possessions or business dealings. It is saying that the undivided devotion a spouse normally gets in a marriage will not be possible for the Christian. Because Christ has that place, doesn't he, as first. And in that sense, it's almost like we're not married, if we're married, because actually we belong to another. We're the bride of Christ. We run for him. We listen to him first. So it's not saying ditch your wife. It's not saying neglect your wife or husband. But it is saying, actually, the first place goes to Christ. He's the one that we run for. And the same is true for children. They're a wonderful gift from God. All the way through scripture, we're told that they are a great gift. But how many people do you know who've nearly shipwrecked their faith because of their children? Choosing churches that don't really clearly preach the Bible, but are active children's work. Or missing church to take their kids to football practice. Not only does it harm their own faith, but actually it harms the faith of their child too. You know, sometimes we actually have to be brave and go against even what our own families want at times. It reminds me a little bit of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, If you know that book, this is what uh, John Bunyan writes. He said, so I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man took out his fingers and put them in his ears. And ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. Sometimes, even in our own families, even if they're wonderful, lovely, godly people, there's still going to be some times when we're going to have to do that in our lives. Run for Jesus. And when our families say no, stick our fingers in our ears and shout life, life, eternal life and carry on. The amazing thing that I love in Pilgrim's Progress is that eventually Christian's wife follows after him. But if Christian had not run, they would both have perished in the city of destruction. 
Sometimes I fear with this, we don't run faster because we fear our spouses and our children won't follow. We don't try and be radical in following Jesus because we fear their disapproval. But friends, if it's what Jesus is calling us to do, if it will help us run the race, then we need to stick our fingers in our ears and shout, life, life, eternal life. And pray that they will follow. So even things that are good in our lives, we need to be careful about, don't we? That they don't weigh us down. We need to run for Jesus first. And we also need to ditch sin itself. We can't expect to run well in the race if we have unrepented of sin in our lives. We're told, aren't we, that it clings so closely there in verse 1. Sin which clings so closely. It's there in our very being. It's there in our hearts. But if we don't keep ditching it, it'll be like cloth that clings around your legs and brings you down in a race. So we need to look at our lives and whatever is hindering us, we need to ditch it. We need to forsake it. The second thing that we need to do is focus. Have a look at the end of verse 1 on to verse 3. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We're to run the race before us with endurance. As we mentioned at the beginning, it's no sprint, it's a marathon. And we're to do it looking to Jesus. Now, that word there, looking, it really has the idea of looking away. So it's looking away to Jesus. So it's as though we're we're looking at something else before, and now we turn our gaze on him. We fix our eyes on him. Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus in our marathon uh, race of faith? Well, we're told that he's the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, the word where it says perfecter of our faith, the word our isn't actually there. He's the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, that doesn't mean he's like Prince Charles, who once declared that he wanted to be defender of faith rather than defender of the faith. What it means is, though, what he's talking about is the faith that he's described in chapter 11. It's not saying faith like the Christian religion. It's saying faith as in what we do in believing the unseen, in believing the promises of God. He's saying that he's the founder and perfecter of that faith that saves, that persevering faith that makes it to the end. And he's the founder of it, the author of it, the originator of it, the inventor of it. If you want to know something about something, you can ask the creator, can't you? You know, if you want to know something about Dyson vacuum cleaners, you ask Dyson, because he's the guy who made them. That's how it works. And as God, he created the whole concept of faith. He knows everything about it because he made it. But he's not just the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. He was the first and only human being ever to live a whole life of complete faith. He aced it in no in a way that no other human being could ever do. So as a man, he perfected faith, living a life of total faith in God. If he wasn't God, 
He couldn't have invented it. He couldn't have made it. He couldn't have been the founder of it. If he wasn't man, he couldn't have perfected it because he had to have his trust in God. But Jesus is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He started faith. He finished faith. He's the A to Z of faith, the Alpha and Omega of faith as both God and man. But the emphasis, though, it really picks up in Hebrews 12 is more the manhood of Christ. Do you notice, actually, it's looking to Jesus um, that we're, we're to do. Not looking to Jesus Christ, not looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, just Jesus. And generally, where you just get that word by itself, the idea in mind is his humanity. He's the man who lived the perfect life of faith. So what did that perfect life of faith look like? Well, just as he has done in chapter 11, he gives us a sort of snapshot uh, of the pinnacle of his faith, in uh, uh, the high point of his faith, if you like, the way that he did in chapter 11 with those different believers there. And the high point of Jesus' faith, the pinnacle of his faith, was the cross. And he uses the cross to tell us what perfect, persevering faith looks like. So what do we see about it? Well, there in verse 2 we're told, he did it for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. Just like Moses that we were talking about with the children, Jesus was looking to the reward. Just like Abraham was looking to the better country, Jesus looks forward beyond the suffering of the cross to the joy that's set before him at the right hand of God. He did it for the reward of unspeakable joy laid before him. Now, I don't know, does that make you feel a bit uncomfortable? Thinking of Jesus doing something for the reward, sort of doing it for something that he gets out of it. Well, it's something that we read elsewhere in scripture. So again, on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see Psalm 23, verse 3. This is about God. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. He's referring there to rescuing them from the exile, but he's doing it for his own name's sake. Or Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. All that I want, all that pleases me. That's why God does things, they're pleasing to him. And we're told here that Jesus is doing this partly for his own purposes, for the joy that's set before him. There was that song in the 90s, wasn't there, uh, Above All. It's a lovely song in many ways, you know, Above All Kingdoms, Above All, you know the one. But it has that line in it at the end, doesn't it? You took the fall and thought of me above all. That's not really true, is it? Hebrews says Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And as we see, other parts of the Bible say God does this for his own namesake. Now, I'm not saying that we don't figure in the equation. In fact, the joy that's set before him would include eternity with us, wouldn't it? But his motivations are thoroughly God-focused aren't they? What pleases God? Now we expect that of us, 
don't we, that our motives would be God-focused. We'd look to what pleases God. Well, why not God looking to what pleases God? If the best motivations we have are to please and to glorify him, then why can't they be the best motivations for God too? It's not selfish for God to act in this way because God seeking his own pleasure is actually the best for everybody. If he saw our pleasure first and foremost, it would lead to a very mixed up world, wouldn't it? Because our pleasures are all mixed up. But God actually seeks his own pleasure first and foremost, which is about his own glory being displayed and enjoyed by all. We saw in our joy series, didn't we, that actually glorifying God and enjoying God is the greatest joy that we can have. So God working for his own pleasure has the flip side that it brings us pleasure too. And Jesus seeking his own joy here has the flip side that it also brings salvation to the world. So actually, Jesus seeking his own joy is a good thing. Seeking that reward, it brings us salvation. But we see here that part of Jesus' persevering faith is seen beyond the now into that joy, don't we? That's really what it's looking at. That's what it's trying to show us. It really is like Moses and Abraham who sought that greater reward. They were looking for the real joy that lied ahead, lay ahead. They could not see it, but they trusted it was coming, just like Jesus is doing on the cross. So he did it for the joy that was set before him. He also, we see, endured suffering. Do you see that there in verse 2? Who for the joy before, that was set before him endured the suffering, endured the cross. And then again in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Part of his perfect persevering faith is actually that he endured suffering. He endured the cross and hostility from sinners. Just like the heroes of faith, again, in chapter 11, we had that list read, didn't we, of all the ways that they suffered. But not just suffering, he also suffered shame. He was killed in the most shameful way that existed, hung naked on a cross and left to die. It was the lowest of low deaths. It was the death of the lowest of the low. The scum of the earth, if you like. And Jesus faced that. And from his own people, there was the shame of the cross that we see there. Uh, you see, despising the shame. And the Hebrew Christians that the author is writing to needed to hear this. They were facing suffering. They were facing shame. Rejected and outcast by their own people. Unprotected by the authorities because of their faith in Christ. They were facing hostility from sinners who put them in prison and stole their belongings with impunity. What did faith do in those circumstances? Well, the perfect faith of Jesus endured it, persevered, kept going, despite the suffering, despite the shame. Their saviour spurned it all for the joy that was set before him, a joy that they too will share if they just make it to the end. And they'll hear those words, won't they, in Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then they will join him round the throne because that's where he is now, isn't he? We see that? The result of faith actually is that he's at the throne. So who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Actually, we see that Jesus, through his faith, conquered death too. Just like the guys that we were seeing in chapter 11. Like Abraham with Isaac, who received him back from the dead. Like those women who received their children by resurrection. Jesus beat death too by faith. And he's now seated at the right hand of God. The resurrection here, you notice, isn't mentioned, but it's implied, isn't it, by the fact that he's there now, enthroned on high. He endured the suffering and has now received what was promised, what they hadn't received. Jesus has now been the one who has finished the race, truly. He persevered, completed the race and received the victor's crown in glory. So what about us? Well, look at the end of verse 3, or whole of verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We're to focus on Christ so that we won't grow weary or faint-hearted, so that we might persevere. The image there of someone who's weary and faint-hearted is the image of someone who's clapped out and exhausted from running a race. A few of us guys went for a walk yesterday up quite a steep hill, and uh, I think it's quite a good illustration of how we all felt at the end of the walk, sort of clapped out and exhausted. But here it's talking about our race of faith, feeling weary and faint-hearted. Perhaps some of us are feeling that way this morning. What's the answer? Consider him. Consider Christ. Consider Jesus who has been there and done that. The one who calls us to run the race. Who bids us to finish the race. And he's not a a disinterested spectator. It's not a case of do as I say, not as I do. He's been there and done that as a man, as a human being. He's faced real physical pain. More intense than probably most of us will feel. He's faced real psychological shame. More shocking than probably any of us will face. He faced the temptation to turn back. And yet he didn't turn back. He endured the cross. He didn't turn his back on us on the cross. So are we really going to turn our back on him? So what he's telling us to do is keep running the race. There is a resting place ahead for those who finish. Keep fixing your eyes on him. Keep forsaking all that will hinder you as you are running. And don't forget that you're not alone in the race. All these things, haven't they, have been let us do these things. But I've left that for the over coffee question. What can we do to do this together? But imagine instead, we said at the beginning, didn't we, imagine those eight people. Imagine instead a handful of us huddled together on the starting line. Alongside hundreds of thousands, millions even perhaps, who are all taking part in the same race from nearly every tribe and tongue and nation. Many have run this race before us and the baton has now passed to us. There are no starting blocks, no timers, this is no sprint. We can see the finish line off in the distance with our eyes of faith. We can see it beyond to the city that God has prepared for us, our final destination where we can rest and enjoy our master's joy forevermore. We can hear the voice of the saints of old calling us to run as they did. And we can see him, the creator 
and one true completer of the race. We fix our eyes on him. We throw off all that hinders and we pick up those who are weary and faint-hearted. The gun goes off and we begin the race of faith for another week. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for God's strength and energy to run the race before us. Let's pray.